message. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 23. So let's turn there, and if you'd like to hold your finger there after we leave, you might. We'll make a few comments, of course, from both of these texts as we combine them. Deuteronomy 4.23, Moses is saying, after just announcing in the previous verses that he's not going into the promised land and reiterates to the children of Israel why, that he's going to die there on this side of Jordan. So this is his admonition after stating that. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. And now, if you want to hold your place there, let's turn to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And we will combine these two texts for our message today. Acts 2, verse 1, a familiar text probably. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We spoke to you last week some reminders about Christ's church, the New Testament church, Ephesians 3.21, glory in the church. And then we were privileged to take the Lord's Supper last Sunday night as a church body. And I think I mentioned to you we were going to start a series of messages on our church covenant. And so this is the first message with regards to our church covenant. And you see it every time you come here because it's hanging in a large print over here on the wall as is uh, the Ten Commandments on the other side. And so the two texts we chose for today are in regards to the church covenant that we have here at Philadelphia Baptist Church. And of course, this text in Deuteronomy 4.23 had the word covenant in it. And then we have in Acts 2 and verse 1 really what it means to be in a covenant relationship when it says they were all with one accord in one place. So the word is in Deuteronomy, and the definition of the word is somewhat in Acts chapter 2. As we begin, we would say again, intentionally repeating ourselves, that it is the greatest honor that we have on this earth is to be a part of, a member of, the Lord's true New Testament Church. Reason being, as we stated last week, there is no greater organization, body, entity, or anything on this earth than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which he is founder and head, and the one who will perpetuate it till the end of the age. It comes with great honor, but with any great honor in any endeavor, there is great responsibility. So as members of the Lord's church, we accept both, the honor as well as the responsibility. I emphasize that today because church, the usage of the word church, going to church and things like this, have become so casual in our generation. Church is not a casual thing. 
It is not a casual institution, and what is done there, it should not be casual either. Again, how can the greatest institution on the earth, in the sight of God, be anything casual? Church is important, as I have said to you here many times over the years as your pastor, church is the most important place you're going to go to all week. It is where our most important activity comes in. It is where our greatest relationships are and should be as God's people. And it is where love shines forth as no other place on the planet, the Lord's church, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this is a solemn occasion when we come here. It is a reverential occasion But it is not a glum gathering. We rejoice within. We don't have to turn cartwheels up and down the aisles to be worshiping. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 that he should endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The metaphor there or analogy being used that we as Christians are, as the old song, Onward Christian Soldiers. We are to be good soldiers to our commander-in-chief in his service, Jesus Christ. And that's a good example that we have of what it means when we talk about the church and the church covenant. Because a soldier has a duty, doesn't he? I mean, and it's made very clear, isn't it, to the soldier what his duty is. And the soldiers, good armies, good soldiers are known by being a well-disciplined group, assembly, force, whether it's small or great, whether we're talking about squads, platoons, or brigades, They are to be a well-disciplined, well-regulated, and faithful-to-duty unit, aren't they? And when soldiers put on a uniform, it is their duty and obligation to show honor unto that uniform, isn't it? To the uniform as to the flag and the company they represent. And there is, of course, punishment if you disgrace the uniform or those individuals whom you serve with, isn't it? The severest being court-martial, some even being death and has been through the ages. So I mention that because, again, this is exactly what we're talking about when we are bringing into the discussion the Lord's church and a church covenant. As soldiers of Jesus Christ, we recognize that he makes all the rules. And it is our duty to abide by what he has given us, the responsibility, as well as the honor to serve him in and through his church. And again, I hesitate not to say to you, this is the place of servitude of God's people in and through the church. It is a deception to think any Christian can serve God, serve Jesus, the head of the church, outside of the church. 
As we said last week and repeat again today, unto Him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end, and amen. Okay? So this is the place to serve God. This is the place to worship God. This is the place to be taught of God, to be edified, to be built up, to be faithful, etc., etc. So we are, in that regard, soldiers of Jesus Christ. We have a duty. We are to be disciplined. We are not to disgrace either our head, commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, nor our fellow soldiers, just like in the military. When soldiers, I suppose they still do, but when you entered in, enlisted, conscripted, or was drafted, you take a oath or a pledge is taken to serve, right? And I mean, I don't know what all is involved in that today. I couldn't quote one from the past. But I know it's very similar to what our presidents, congressmen, legislators do. They take an oath to serve the Constitution, the country, the flag, the people. In so many words, right? And that oath that they take, that pledge that they take, in swearing allegiance, involved there also, lays on them an accountability, doesn't it? If you had not taken an oath, and then you went AWOL or something, you could say, well, I never, I never said that I'd do this or do that. But that's why the oath is there. To give notice that you have sworn allegiance to the country, and if you break that, you could be convicted of treason, betrayal, things like that, executed, so forth and so on. So the oath, the pledge, the allegiance is an accountability. And where there is accountability, then there can be punishment if you break that oath. So that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about a church covenant. We have all done the same thing, just like soldiers do. The Lord Jesus Christ is our commander-in-chief. There is no higher authority. There's nobody greater we could serve. We serve the greatest individual there is. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when we were saved, we took an oath and a pledge. When you entered into the body of this church, you entered into a pledge and an alliance, a covenant, not only with God but with and His church, but with one another here. So it's very similar. And the analogy or the metaphor fits, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The word covenant should not be foreign to any of us. Because as students of the Bible, we read that word very often in both Old and New Testament. And many places it appears simply by definition or inference without the word being there. But there were many covenants. We wouldn't even begin to try to list them all. It would take too much time and too many messages. But a covenant was established in the very beginning between the first man and God himself. It's called the Adamic Covenant. And that covenant was in the words of every tree of the fruit of the garden thou mayest eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God created Adam. He was his creator head. Adam was the creature. Adam was responsible, as was his wife, unto their creator. And that oath and allegiance and all the things I've talked about in covenant was implied in those words I just quoted you. 
They were obligated to obey their creator in that law that he laid down, that eating of every tree except one, and the penalty or responsibility, accountability for violating that covenant was punishment by death. So, we recognize that as the Adamic covenant. There was the covenant God made with Noah, the Noah covenant. There's the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 15, again in Genesis 17. There's a covenant of God with Israel at Mount Sinai, remember that. There was a covenant with David, and on and on we could go. Many covenants with many kings, different degrees, different things, different places. And that's not even mentioning the covenants between individuals, is it? I mean, think about the covenant that uh, David and Jonathan had, you know. In that regard. So we're not foreign to the word covenant, either as Bible students or as responsible adults. If you've ever got a loan, you entered into a covenant. <laughs> uh, you went into debt, you may not have thought of it as a covenant, but those words up the top where it says about some type of agreement, that's a covenant. So we know what covenants are. And uh, they are basically, and in brief form, and Webster says it kind of like this, it is a binding agreement between at least two persons or two parties. At least that many. It might involve a lot more. But it is a binding agreement of two or more persons or parties to do or keep from doing a specific or certain thing Singular things, plural. All right? So think about, for instance, the covenant of God that he made with the Israelites at Sinai in the giving of the law. And here we have a covenant between God, one, and the Israelites, which were many. And they agreed to do all that God said course if you know much about covenants in the bible you know god has always been faithful in his and man usually is not faithful in any part of his but you know what a covenant is it is a binding agreement basically again between the parties to either do or don't do certain things or can involve both of those things so let's go back to the very start when god saved us as sinners when you were converted, when God saved you by His grace, you repented of your sins and by faith trusted into Jesus Christ, if He indeed is your Savior and became your Savior at that time of conversion, then at that very moment of your conversion, you entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought of it in that, but you did. We we'll say, well, how so? I don't remember anything about obligating myself to this or to that or to whatever. Well, let's just think about the gospel, and I can show you very easy. What does Christ say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, twenty nine, and thirty? He says, "Come unto me, all." And I'm going to paraphrase a little in further. All you sinners who are burdened and heavy laden with sin, and I will give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Do you realize there's a covenant 
That's a covenant statement. Jesus said, you come and I will. Right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Jesus made promises to sinners. If they would obey the gospel by acknowledging their sin, being convinced and convicted of the guilt and shame of that sin, come to him for remission of sin, and what will he do? Let's sum it up in another word. He that believeth on me, I give unto him eternal life. You believe, you repent, I'll give you eternal life. That's a covenant, folks. So when you believe the gospel, when you repented of your sin, when you confessed your sin, and when you asked forgiveness of Christ and His sacrifice and His blood, you were taking God up on His, on His gospel covenant promise. And I'm here today to assure you He will not fail. He will not fail. So that's special and that's blessed. And I'm very happy to be able to remind you of that today. So again, go home rejoicing today that when you believed, when you confessed, you repented, you were converted, at that moment, you accepted the terms of the gospel and the promise of God. And God's never broken a covenant, and He never will. And we can rest upon those promises of the gospel. Now, we have, therefore, from that time forward... He being our Savior, we being His adopted sons and daughters, a covenant relationship. There's another aspect of the covenant I don't have time to go into, but again, you got that? We're in the part of the family of God by adoption. There's a relationship too, right? But I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a little bit over in your Bibles from the text in Acts, and remind you of something here about this covenant relationship. 1 Corinthians 6, reading at verse 17, we read, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Just pause there and think about that for just, just a moment. Joined unto the Lord. Okay? When you were converted, you were joined unto the Lord by and in the Holy Spirit. You are still joined under the Lord by the same Spirit. You will always be joined to the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Then he says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. He's talking about the body. What is the body to the child of God? Verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Let's let that soak in for a moment. The child of God, our physical body, is a place where God dwells by the residence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when God is in a place, it automatically becomes a holy place. Remember Moses at the burning bush? It was an ordinary bush in an ordinary place out in the middle of nowhere. But God's presence there changed everything, didn't it? It not only caused the bush to burn without being burned up, but God said what? 
take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. There wasn't nothing holy about the ground till God got there. Right? There wasn't nothing holy about you or me till Christ got there. But ever since he got there, there's been a treasure in an earthen vessel. And that treasure is Christ in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that makes our body now a special place. It's the same old body, except it has the indwelling of the triune God. And where God dwells, it might as well be a temple. That's why Paul used this language. Look on now in verse 20, the covenant relationship. When we were saved, we were redeemed, and redeemed means to be bought. And the language here is just like a master and a slave, or merchandise. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And get this, and I wish I could repeat this to... There's been so many people through the years, I wish I could just keep repeating this until they got it. And I did repeat it a lot to a lot of people and have, and they never get it. They're gods. You don't belong to you anymore. If you're truly converted and saved, you belong to somebody else. I've thought about preaching on, and maybe we should sometime, just the word master. I mean, the disciples used that word. What a precious word. You know, the word Lord appears how many hundreds of times in the Bible, and it literally means essentially the same thing, master. The usage of the word implies, I am your servant. What do you wish me to do? I am here to do whatever you want me to do because you own me. I belong to you. You bought me. I am not my own. Verse 19 says This is a very early thing that Christians need to learn. When God saves you, when Christ saves you, when you become baptized and a member of the Lord's church, you are no longer your own. A lot of choices and options that you had just went out the window. When Christ saved you, He saved you to serve. And we belong to Him. And that's a covenant relationship. Over in the 7th chapter... Verse 22, read it with me there also. Paul again says this. In uh, verse, let's begin 7, 22, 23. We'll try to be brief here for time's sake. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also that he is called being free is Christ's servant. And he's using the illustration here that if you were a slave when God saved you, guess what? You might still be a slave in the flesh, But you became free in Christ. And then he can turn it around and say, Likewise, if you were free, you became a servant or a slave. It fits both ways. You're free from the penalty of sin, but you entered into a covenant relationship with he who redeemed you with his own precious blood, and you became a slave or a servant to him. Says it again, verse 20, Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. And of course Peter says in 1 Peter that you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we were the servants of sin, but we became the servants of righteousness according to the book of Romans. We don't have time to go and read those scriptures, but they're there in the book of Romans. 
And our obedience in this covenant relationship is the proof of our salvation, of our discipleship, and of our love to our Lord. Okay? So, what are we talking about again? We're talking about a covenant relationship with our Lord that we carry out through His church, which He is the head of. This again is the vineyard. This is a place Christ works in and through the church. The world is a vineyard too, don't get me wrong. But again, this is the place that he has placed us to work. When we look at the big scope of things, is this part of the world's vineyard here in the place where we live. But what did Jesus say in relationship to that? Well, very briefly, in John's Gospel chapter 14, he said this. John chapter 14 and verse 15. This is to those disciples that he had and who heard him. If you love me, keep my commandments. So again, the keeping of his commandments is simply being obedient to the covenant. Okay? That relationship we have with Christ that he bought us, he owns us, We serve Him, we do what He says to do or not to do. That's it. And He's saying, if you love me, keep the commandments. And I'll make another comment in just a moment, but I want to read another scripture too before I do. John 8, verse 31. Here Jesus said to those which profess to believe on Him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And we could rephrase that and say, as long as you are obedient to the covenant, then you manifest you're my disciples indeed, and you manifest that you love me. Now John said it again in 1 John. And many things he says in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's already said in the Gospel of John in one way or another. But again, it's beautiful there. 1st John chapter 2, verse 3. Hereby do we know that we know him. If we keep His commandments. You ever have doubts about your salvation? We all have. The devil loves to give you and get you into the doubt mode of your salvation. One sure way to know you're a child of God, do you love Him and are you following Him or are you obeying Him? It's pretty simple. In fact, there is no other way for you to know that you know Him other than obedience to exactly what He said. If you love me, keep my commandments. He could have said it like this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's inferred, implied, and proven by other places in Scripture. So John says it like that right there. Then over in the fifth chapter, verse 2 and 3, he similarly says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. And I'll just pause right there and say, don't separate any of that because you can't. You can't love God and not love His commandments. You can't love God and not love God's people. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's a unity. It all goes together. Verse 3, For this is the love of God. Definitive. That we keep His commandments. And how do you view the commandments of God? I hope not what's said in the last part of the verse. Not grievous. The world, the unbelievers, find God's word grievous. They find God's law grievous. You know why? It tells them what to do and what not to do before a just and holy God. 
That should be sweet to you. should be sweet to me. Because we love Him, we want to please Him. Therefore, His commandments are not grievous to us. So again, obedience to this covenant, to our Lord, is the proof of true salvation. It's the proof of true discipleship. And it's the proof of true love. When you were baptized... You made a public profession, and in the act of submitting to scriptural baptism, you made a public pledge and declaration and allegiance of your covenant with Christ. That's essentially what baptism depicts. It is an act of obedience whereby someone who has professed Christ as Savior announces publicly that they have this relationship of being bought by Him. They are entering into servitude with Him. And they are declaring and announcing that. So when after God saved you and you were baptized, you just like a good soldier, you took your oath of allegiance by the public act of baptism. You may have already announced it to me, the church, or somebody else, but you announced it to the world by that. And then when you became a member of this church, you became a member of this body of believers. And not only did you bring that covenant relationship with Christ with you into this body, but you then entered into, as we just read in 1 John, if we love Him, we've got to love believers. If we love Him, we've got to love the commandments. You can't dice it any way, but the three stay together. So when Christ brought you to this body, added you to this body by the Holy Spirit, which we always make clear to everyone that petitions for membership, that they understand that's what's happening. If the Spirit's not bringing you here, you need to go where He's leading you. But make sure He's bringing you here or we don't want you here. I'm not being offensive when I say that. But the Bible tells us Christ builds His church by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the first things we read in our church covenant up there. And so we not only brought that covenant with Christ here, but we entered into another covenant with one another as fellow believers in Christ. Same Savior, same love, same baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? And last week we entered in and shared one cup and one piece of bread, didn't we, in the communion service. So we have a church covenant here on the wall. And what I'm about to say is the thing you probably need to remember the most in all these messages if the Lord allows that I'll be preaching from the church covenant. And that is this. Hear me carefully. A written out church covenant such as we have is not mandatory for us to be a church. That written document that we have here on the wall doesn't make us a church. It doesn't have to be there for us to be a church. All right? You got that? But, wherever believers are gathered together, they must be covenanted together or they're not a church. Now, there's a big difference in the two things I said. That writing over here on the wall doesn't really covenant together us. That is simply a manifestation of our spiritually already being covenanted together. 
So again, churches have statements of faith. We have one back there. We don't have to have that document back there to be a church. It's a document of convenience, as this one is. We don't have a... Uh, some churches have a church constitution. That's fine. You don't have to have a church constitution to be a church. Because you've got one, don't make you a church. Some churches have bylaws. That's fine too. But just remember, the bylaws don't make you a church. Okay? These are just things that are put on record and put down to assist, uh, to be brief, to help the church and other people, and that all things may be done decently in order, but they are not required for us or any organization, assembly of God's people, to be a church. Okay? Why do we have one then? Well, because as I said, we must, in order to be a church, be covenanted together. What is a church? You know, we've covered it many times. I'll remind you again. It comes from the word ecclesia. The briefest, shortest definition of an ecclesia or a church is a called out assembly of baptized believers covenanted together to carry out the Great Commission. That's it. That's it. That's why I said you don't have to have a church covenant written document. But believers must be covenanted together to be a church. It is an assembly. This is why we chose the text in Acts 2 and 1. They were all with one accord in one place. That's as good a definition of what covenanted together means as I know of. And there is a beauty in that. Think of that. This is what we desire when we come here. It's a fight to have that. It's a fight within ourselves. I'm not saying it's a fight with the other members. But Satan does not want the Lord's church to be of one accord in one place when it meets. Satan was having a field day at the church at Corinth with the divisions and strifes and little groups and little cliques and little sects over here and that little group over there and preacher followers. Satan loves that. When we come here, we should do everything within our power before we get here and when we get here and after we get here to be of one accord in this one place. Covenanted together. So we know what a church is. And we know the church existed before Pentecost, that Christ started it before his personal ministry. And when we read that in Acts 2 and 1, we realize we're reading about the church. That at that time, at Jerusalem, consisted of approximately 120 members from the previous chapter. And they were there, bound together, covenanted together, gathered together. In one accord, in one place. Now folks, that's ideally what the church is. And that's what we strive for. But just remember, we strive for it because Satan wants to disrupt that. He wants me to inject something that's disruptive. He wants you to inject something that's disruptive. Anything he can drag in here from out there that will disrupt the Lord's church, he wants to do it. 
And we still have this old uh, body of flesh, too, that we have to bring here when we come, don't we? So, uh, you know, it's always a potential for disruption and to break up harmony and break up fellowship. Not to mention what James talked about, this thing that's wagging around in my mouth right now that I'm talking to you with, the tongue. We know what a deadly thing that can do to fellowship and to being of like-mindedness and one accord. So again, we as good soldiers want to discipline ourselves that we are encouragers, exhorters, and doing everything to seek, achieve, and maintain that one accord. I said there's a beauty in that, and there is. But think about this before I describe that beauty and wrap this up. This covenant together is the same as being bound together. And how are we initially bound together? In Christ. Christ Jesus saved me. He's my Savior. Did He save you? You say, nod your head, yes, He did. Well, guess what? It's the same love He loved me that He's loved you with. What does that make us, brothers and sisters in Christ? It was the same blood that washed away my sins that washed away your sins. I mean, we could go on and on, couldn't we? He's my head. He bought me. He bought you. I mean, you see how we just keep, we're bound together by Christ being our Savior and our Lord. Bought with the price. We're not our own. Who do we belong to? We all belong to Him. Alright? So we're bound together in Christ. And how does He manifest this? Guess what? He put His Holy Spirit in you. Guess what? He put it in me. Guess what? He, the Holy Spirit resides in all of His people. I mean, there's just like the second leak of a chain. We just got bound a little bit tighter. Because we have the earnest of the Spirit. And then what else are we burned by? But bound by, rather. Not burned by. Sometimes it does burn us, but... Uh, it's what you have in your lap. This is the only rule of faith and practice for Christ's church is His Bible. This Bible, God's Word. So we're bound in Christ, we're bound by the Holy Spirit, and we're bound by the Word. That's one accord. Right there. Now I said there's a beauty with it. Let me quickly share this and wrap this up in the time we have left. Because the one accord in one place or the same place is exactly what the church is, and that's covenanted together. This word, one accord, this particular Greek word, shows up 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of them are in Acts. Okay? So that tells you, and what's the church all, what's the Acts all about? The church, right? Okay. So, 11 out of 12 in the book of Acts. The other time is in, if you're wondering where it is, Romans 15, 6, and it's translated one mind. And being of one accord means being of one mind. You can't be of one accord if you're of different minds. The Bible says, put on, have the mind of Christ. Guess what? If I got the mind of Christ, you got the mind of Christ, and we come here, what are we going to be? In one accord, in one place. That's what we're shooting for. That's our goal every time these doors open and we meet for a service. Never forget that. Never forget that. Now, the beauty of this is in two words that make up one accord. The, I'm not even going to tell you the Greek word because it wouldn't matter and I'd probably mispronounce it. You wouldn't remember it, so it don't matter. But it's made of two words. One, the first one means to rush along, and the second one means in unison. So one accord means to rush along in unison. Now, I could give you an illustration that will fit what we've been talking about. We begin with good soldiers of Jesus Christ. 
And it's very impressive, isn't it, to see a group of soldiers marching in unison, right? I mean, and the more there is, and the more they are in step, it's impressive, isn't it? Well-disciplined, in unison, not one guy out of step. And I might pause there and say, if somebody was out of step, how would you like for it to be you? Oh, boy. Well, that's the attitude the disciples had on the night of the Lord's Supper when he said, one of you is going to betray me, and they began to ask the question, is it I? Instead of looking for the guy that's out of step, we ask, am I the one out of step? You know? Okay. But rush along and in unison. But usually they're marching at a steady pace. But sometimes there's such a thing as double time, right? So if they're rushing along, they're going to have to speed up. So imagine them in double time, but yet still in unison. That's harder. Well, you could think of it in that way, and that would be a very good illustration of to rush along in unison because we've all seen that image and picture of troops doing that. But there's another illustration that's probably better. And in fact, some of the what I've read about the Word said that the beauty of one accord lies probably more within the imagery of music. Of music of having several people with a number of different notes being played on different instruments, yet all of it harmonizing in pitch and tone. What do we, what do we think of in that? An orchestra. An orchestra. All kinds of instruments, all kinds of notes, all being played at the same time, yet in a unison. And of course, an orchestra can play it really, 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 really slow, but a lot of times they just speed things up in a rush and go to a crescendo, and it's, it's just marvelous to hear an orchestra do that, right? So that is the imagery probably better than the troops, is of music in that different instruments, different sounds, different notes, yet all rushing along in tempo to a crescendo in perfect unison and harmony. And then guess what? They don't do that randomly by themselves, do they? No, they have a director or a orchestra master that stands up there and accomplishes all this, right? He's the guy that tells and has them do this and that. And well, he is not. And of course, that's like sign language. None of it ever made any sense to me. I never was in a band. Kelly's told us about some of it and the things. But again, he directs to achieve that with all of that. Well, guess what? That's what the church of the door of Jesus Christ is all about. One accord in one place is that the Holy Spirit is the director for all of us who are different, different gifts, different abilities, different backgrounds, different this, different that, how the Holy Spirit can bring, literally, you want me to be blunt without being offensive, a bunch of misfits, all together into one harmonious body. I've never been amazed at how, cease to be amazed at how God can do that, but that's what He does in His church. He brings the membership together to be of one accord, in unison. 
And we'll talk more about that later. What, it, what is it that puts us in unison? What do we have in common? But there's the beauty of one accord in one place. Before I close, I want to give you one more. And we'll drop it at that for today. The word or the two words, one accord, shows up in other places in Scripture other than the twelve I mentioned, but it's not the same word. It's a different word. And there's one place, I want you to read with me and then we'll be done. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where the word shows up, and I want to share this with you, it being a different word, that is translated one accord. And you've got to love this one. If you loved what I said before about the other one, you're going to love this one. Philippians 2.1, Paul says, If there be therefore any consolation of Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, and any bowels of mercy, and let me just pause and say, it's all of those virtues that we are to have to be of one accord. That's what makes us of one accord. He then says, Fulfill ye my joy. That you be, and notice this, like-minded. Like-minded or one mind, but that's not our word. Having the, what? Same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And the word one accord there is a different Greek word. This is the only time it shows up. It's something like some shukos, something like that. But I'm sharing it with you because it's made up of two words. The first word is son, which ends up S-U-M when they're put together. But son, which means together with, and shukchos, which is the word for soul. So think about that. One accord here, this word used one time means together with soul. Now what is the soul? Well, that's a real you. I'm looking at you bodily, but that's not really you. We know each other by what's inside more than we know what we're looking at, don't we? I mean, we know that. We've been taught that. It is literally, as the Scripture said, the hidden man of the heart. It's the inner life, the inner you. That's where the real you is. That's where the real feelings are, the real desires are, the real affections are. Right? That's our soul. And this word means that God's people are to be together in their souls. Now, I've got to say this before I close. We hear so much today about quote-unquote soul mates. It's nauseating. Most of the people who say that have no clue what they're talking about. I'm not being condemning, I'm being factual. As many times I try to be factual but not condemning, and if it condemns, then it condemns because it's factual, not because I said it. This word means spiritually soulmates. That's what it means. God's people. We are bound with our very souls. And I kind of think of David and Jonathan and their covenant. You know, and this. About two individuals who loved each other more than they loved themselves as husbands and wives should. 
in that covenant, soulmates. Now again, I hate the word because of the way it's used and abused in the world. I've, I've seen people commit all kinds of sin under the guise of soulmate. And it's nauseating, it's despicable, it's blasphemous. Divorces are happening every day. You know why? Because somebody claims to have found their soulmate somewhere else. And so they'll break a vow with one person and make a vow to another. If they broke that one, what makes you think they're going to keep a second one? I wonder if people ever think of that. I've known people that committed adultery and claimed it on the, justified it by finding their true soulmate. Hogwash, garbage, blasphemy to the Word of God. Here's a true soulmate. You and I are to be the greatest soulmates that there ever has been, ever will be, and ever can be because we're united in covenant together in the Lord's church by the highest power that there is, that being the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. So the world uses it and abuses it, but folks, if you're a believer today, and we're members of this body and we're covenanted together, we have it. And it's the real thing. And it's the genuine thing. And we are to cultivate it and maintain it to seek to be in one accord when we come together to this same place time after time. That's what a church covenant reveals. The do's and don'ts of Christ and His church. And I'll say this as we close and probably say it the next time we take up this subject. It's not something some men or we just came up with that sounded good and we did. Everything that we're going to be addressing and looking at in these messages in the church covenant comes from the Bible. And if it didn't, we shouldn't have it. We should have thrown it away a long time ago. Because the Bible is what binds us together. So, God bless this word to your hearing today. God give us the grace to strive together always for one accord in Christ in the church. To Him be the glory. Amen.